The audio you are about to hear was recorded at the 2018 USA-Canada Region District Superintendents Retreat in Carlsbad, California. Our prayer is that you are blessed by this message. It's such an honor to be with you, and I, I, I genuinely mean that. I've, I've had the privilege these last five years to, uh, to be much closer to the district superintendency than, than I had in all of the previous years of, of ministry. And I've, I've been able to see you in action. And I, I know what you do. I see what you do. And I see you with your people and your pastors. And you, you are the best we have. And, and many of you are serving in roles now that you didn't anticipate that would happen. And sometimes I'm sure you're, you're driving home around midnight after a board meeting and you're saying, how did this happen to me? But we honor you tonight and thank God for you and who you are and what you do. And uh, you're a blessing to the Board of General Superintendents. Thank you. As, as a blessing, uh, some of you have been asking me this week about my hair. <laughs> and uh, uh, you've been, you've been, one person said it to me this way, your hair looks lighter <laughs> than I saw it before which is a way of saying, why is your hair so gray? Um, and I, I, I really don't know. One person was kind enough to say to me, you know how the president comes into office? <laughs> and after four years, they look like they're 20 years older. And, that, and they walked away. That's all they said to me. <laughs> so the best, the best thing I can figure out is... Um, I went to South America in January, and I got on a five-seat airplane, and they flew me through the Andes Mountains, and I went in, my hair was dark, I got off, this is what it looked like. <laughs> I'm not, not sure what happened there, but I'm going to sue the church, no. <laughs> I, would, I love this church. I, I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene. I was introduced to Jesus in this church. I was spiritually formed in this church. I was nurtured in this church. I, I found my call to ministry in this church. I raised my family in this church. Most of what I have and own has been paid through the tithes of the laity of our church. I, I've given my life to serve this church. I love the Church of the Nazarene. And I love it more than ever, having been able to serve these last five years and to see the church in action. The church around the world, the church in USA, Canada, and around the world is an amazing church. We are stronger than I ever thought we were. We are more creative than I ever thought we were. We are, we are more courageous than I ever dreamed we would be. I've met people and seen people, and I've, and I've seen the church do things that, that I didn't think I had the courage to do. And it's out of my love for the Church of the Nazarene that I also talk about the things that I hope we can change. And one of the things that for me is an area where we have not been 
as theologically robust in our theology is in our view and in our practice of the sacraments. Now, let me be clear right from the beginning to tell you I don't consider myself a sacramentalist. I don't believe that the sacraments are what saves us. I don't think they are primarily what the Church of the Nazarene is about. But I think it's important for us to to go back and to think uh, a little more deeply than our tradition has done at times about what this means for the Church of the Nazarene. So let's start with a few basic things. And I, I know, I, I, like Dr. Graves said this morning, we are so preaching to the choir on nights like this. I, I, I doubt there's one person here tonight who would say, I don't, I don't think the Church of the Nazarene should be a sacramental in, in our practice. But let's, let's go back and remind ourselves what we're talking about. What is a sacrament? You know that the word sacrament comes from a Latin word that's the translation of the Greek word mysterion. So as soon as we start to talk about sacraments, we already know that we're talking about something that's beyond our own understanding. This is a mystery that we're talking about. This is not something we can figure out at the end of a pencil. We've got to understand there are mysteries around the sacraments that no amount of theology can explain or understand. Augustine defined a, a Christian sacrament as a visible sign of an invisible reality. It's kind of like my wedding ring. I don't just wear this wedding ring as jewelry. Uh, I, I wear it as a visible sign to the people around me of a, of a reality that's very deep within me of a relationship that I committed to 35 years ago with Christy. This is a visible sign of an invisible reality. Wesley found his definition for a sacrament from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, where he said that a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. He took it one step further. Some Christian traditions have multiple sacraments. For example, the Church of the Nazarene honors seven different sacraments, but almost all Christian denominations practice at least two, including the Church of the Nazarene, and all of us know that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. But we also know that that believing in something, orthodoxy, and practicing something, orthopraxy, are not the same thing. They are different. We can believe something and by our practice show that we really don't believe in something. And depending on how often something actually gets practiced, it can give a pretty good indication of its value to a person or its importance even to a denomination. Now, in the Nazarene churches where I grew up and my family attended, which weren't many, we only had a few, we we didn't flip around churches, we didn't church hop, when we moved to a city, we found our church, and we stayed. I never heard my parents speak badly of any person in any church, especially the pastor. So I, I was a very sheltered Nazarene kid. I thought the church of the Nazarene was perfect. And then I got gray hair. No. <laughs> but in the churches where I grew up, uh, 
we, we receive the Lord's Supper maybe four times a year. And that was because the manual called for quarterly communion. And, and on a very rare occasion, honestly, maybe once every couple of years, we would have a baptism service. I can't remember more than half a dozen baptism services in all the churches of the Nazarene I attended to the age of 18. And I think I know some of the reasons for that. First of all, it was pretty clear that we had a general distaste for anything that sounded too Catholic, anything that felt too ritualistic, or, or as we like to talk about it in the Church of the Nazarene, anything that didn't seem like it was, quote, from the heart. And in the vernacular of the Church of the Nazarene, that means we got to really mean it to do it. And so if it was structured or not, and if it was too, too structured, if it was too experiential or not experiential enough, we tended to just avoid it. In regard to the Lord's Supper, we, we lean toward this idea that receiving communion is more about just remembering Jesus' death on the cross, his sacrifice for us, and and, but we didn't identify it with real communion with God. And we didn't identify it with real communion with each other. And so we just figured, let's get sad four times a year. In fact, we even put in our articles of faith a phrase that we said, let's call it a memorial supper. And so we assumed that if it's just about remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross, that there's probably other ways we can do that. Besides going to all the trouble of, you know, preparing and serving bread and juice and having to double the ushering crew and all of that, that's just a lot of hassle. And not only that, I heard a lot of people in my churches say, you know, pastor, if we do this too much, it won't be meaningful anymore. And as a result, we, we substituted it for other rituals. Things like going to the altar, uh, things like, which we did all the time. At my home church in Bethany, Oklahoma, we had an altar call every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I was there at almost every time praying at the altar. With regard to baptism, we, we started to think that this is uh, mainly about us giving our public witness to our faith in Christ. And that, you know, we could probably cover this public witness thing by Wednesday night prayer meetings and testimony times. And we would save the trouble of getting wet. Are you with me? Hence, a lot of Nazarene churches didn't even have a baptistry. We kind of presumed on one of those rare occasions when we would have a baptism, we could go find a swimming pool somewhere or we could go down to the Baptist church, but we were not going to pour or sprinkle like those half-committed Methodists. Are you with me? You understand? You, you, are, this is my church. Now, please don't get me wrong. The altar, the altar of the Church of the Nazarene and testimonies are good. They are important. If you knew me as a pastor, we were at the altars almost every Sunday. They are still important to us. I lament the fact that both of those seem to be in some decline in our churches. But my brother and sister, the altar and the testimony service 
are not substitutes for dominical sacraments. They are not substitutes for the commands of Jesus. This was not, by the way, a habit we inherited from Brazil. If you've studied Brazil and the early Nazarenes, they had amazing practices. At Los Angeles First Church of the Nazarene, every service was an evangelistic service. Every service aimed at the conversion of sinners. Every service aimed at the sanctification of believers. Every service aimed at the edification of the saints. People came for Sunday school. They stayed for the morning worship service. They stayed in their pews and they ate their lunches. They had an afternoon service. They did an early evening where they went out to hold meetings on the street and then they finished the day with an evening service and that happened every single Sunday. Those early Nazarenes had a visible, frequent, and rich sacramental life. I don't know if you knew that or not. The Lord's Supper was held twice a month in Brazil's church in the afternoon service. And on the opposite Sundays where they weren't having the Eucharist, they had the Methodist-style love feast. So it was two weeks of the Eucharist. It was two weeks of the love feast. Baptism. They baptized infants and children and adults all the time. They did it at the beginning of the morning service. They did it during Sunday school picnics. They did it at church gatherings down at the beach at Playa del Rey, which is not far from where we are right now. On one occasion, Brazil baptized a man in a board meeting. The board meeting wasn't, the board member wasn't baptized. Brazil said, this will never do. He baptized him on the spot. And another time, he baptized an infant of the Sunday school superintendent at the beginning of the opening convocation on a Sunday morning. Brzee was writing in the first Nazarene publication. It's called the Nazarene Messenger. And this is what he said. I, this is such a profound way of saying it. He said the sacramental service, and by that he meant the, uh, the communion service, was not a memorial alone. For in the midst was the manifest presence of the risen Lord. Brzee was trying to say something to those early Nazarenes to say, we're not just remembering his death. There is something that happens in this moment of the Eucharist where the Spirit of the Lord comes in a way and manifests his presence among his people in a way that doesn't happen in any other fashion. These were our beginnings. And, and I think we've made some progress in this area in some of our churches, but I do something I never did before, and that is I read hundreds and hundreds of pastor reports in the USA and Canada. You read a lot of them too. And I have to tell you that I'm still alarmed by the infrequency of communion and the low number of baptisms that are reported. We report a lot of conversions, but I have never seen a pastor's report, or I shouldn't say never, but infrequently do I see even half of baptisms compared to conversions. And I wonder why that is. And so I, I grow increasingly concerned and convicted about our lack of sacramental theology and and the regular practice, listen, of what Wesley said 
is a means of grace. That something happens in these two sacraments that cannot just happen at an altar of prayer, that cannot happen in a testimony moment. There's, there's a means of grace that is given to the believer that is given to us from God. Now, what we're going to do for a few minutes tonight is we're going to focus on, on uh, baptism. We'll do, we'll do the Eucharist another time, but let's talk about baptism for a minute. You ready to do that? Say amen if you're ready to do that. I do that so I can get a drink. Thank you. You have your Bibles? Turn with me in your Bibles. This is going to be a super fast scan, and I'm going to talk fast, so I'm going to ask you to listen really fast. And obviously, this is more of an instructional sermon, but I, I think the Lord wants to say something to us tonight. You don't have to read very far in the New Testament to realize the immense importance of baptism. You say, David, why, why is it so important in the New Testament? What's your reasoning for saying that? Well, let me give you the first and what I think is the foremost reason that, that we should be baptizing. First and foremost, Jesus was baptized. Let me say that again because I don't think we should pass over this too quickly. Jesus, the Son of God, the one that we follow, was baptized himself. You go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they offer detailed descriptions of Jesus' baptism. There's a lot of things that the gospel writers didn't cover and a lot of things that they left out. But the one thing that they did not leave out and they covered in great detail was the baptism of Jesus. So that Jesus chose to be baptized, that's reason enough for any follower to do the same. But the second important reason that I think that we have to consider in the New Testament is that did you know the very first words that Jesus spoke in the entire New Testament, guess what it's about? It's about baptism. Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin whose name was John. We also know him as John the Baptist which is a good argument, by the way, for being Wesleyan Arminian. John was a Baptist. Jesus was a Nazarene. Uh, but Jesus comes to John. Why? He says, John is preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. And for that reason, John looks at his cousin and says, I'm not going to do this. I need to be baptized by you. I know what this represents, and I know what this means, and so I am not going to baptize you. In fact, even though I've been baptizing thousands of people, I need to be baptized by you. And remember what Jesus says to him. Look at what it says. Let it be so now, because it is proper for us to do this. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. And so John relents, and he baptizes Jesus. And in that moment, heaven and earth come together. And the eternal God, in all of his Trinitarian glory, is manifested. And in what is one of the clearest expressions of the Trinity in all the Bible, God the Son is baptized, God the Holy Spirit descends, and God the Father speaks. And this is what God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
After his baptism, Jesus then does something interesting. He directs his disciples to start baptizing people. This is the first time. Now that he's been baptized, he directs his disciples to baptize. With an interesting footnote, and that is that Jesus doesn't baptize himself. He says, I want the disciples baptizing other disciples. After his resurrection, Jesus then gives a mission mandate to guide disciples until he comes again. And this is, this is all rehearsal, but, but I'm trying to help you to see a theme here. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And Nazarene said, amen. That's our mission statement. But then, say it with me. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Go and make disciples how? By baptizing them in the Trinitarian name and then teaching them to obey the way of Jesus. Jesus is basically saying, repeat after me. Follow my example. Do what I've done. Do what you've seen me do. Teach what I have taught you to do. And so here's the first principle. The first thing we learn is that baptism is not a divine option. Baptism is a divine imperative. It's not like power steering on your car. I might get it and I might not. It's easier to have it, but I don't really need it to drive. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command of Jesus to everyone who would follow him. And if you think the early church misunderstood that, let's now go to Acts chapter 2. Because on the day of Pentecost, also the birthday of the church, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he preaches a powerful and convicting sermon. And following that sermon, Acts 2 tells us, look at what it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Talk about teeing it up. Peter says, here's what you should do. Repent. And say it with me, and be baptized, every one of you. Somebody say, every one. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's an interesting statement. Now, I don't think we're going to go quite that far. We're not going to go completely with Peter on that. But notice that Peter doesn't say here that baptism is how your sins are forgiven. Peter understands that comes through repentance, that comes through the new birth in Christ. But Peter was saying that forgiveness is symbolized and reenacted in what happens in baptism. And then Luke tells us those who accepted his message, every time you see baptism or baptized, would you just say it with me? Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That was a big baptismal service. And so immediately, here's, immediately following their conversion, people were instantly and spontaneously baptized. And this is going to prove to be a kind of pattern throughout the book of Acts. You're going to see conversions happen, and immediately and spontaneously there's going to be a baptism. Probably the, the most famous one that you know about is, is what happens with Philip 
when he feels called to go out in the middle of the desert at high noon. You know that whole story. The Ethiopian eunuch, he's got this divine appointment. It makes no sense why he's out there in the desert. The eunuch is a high-ranking African official, from, and, and he's a God-fearer. He's coming back from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and he is seeking God. And Philip is approaching the chariot, and he hears the man reading from the book of Isaiah. And he's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? The man says, I don't. And he invites Philip into the chariot, and Philip explains it to him. And he starts with the passage in Isaiah, and he explains how all of this is pointing to Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And by the grace of God, the Ethiopian eunuch puts his faith in Jesus, and he's born again. And then it says this, then the man said, oh, look, right here in the middle of the desert, there's some water here. Why shouldn't I be what? Baptized. And Philip says, I can't think of a reason why you shouldn't be, unless we need to go through 12 weeks of catechism class. And so they stop the chariot, and Philip baptizes him right there in the middle of the desert. By the way, I'm not going to do this tonight, but guess what happens as soon as Saul is converted? Ananias is there in his house. The scales fell off. What do they do? They they don't go out and have a public testimony, sir. What do they do? They have a baptism. What happens the moment that uh, Peter and all of Cornelius' family comes to Christ? What happens immediately? They're baptized. That's the sequence that happens all the way through the book of Acts. In fact, baptism so closely followed conversion in the early church that they were almost seen as one event. Did you know that I'm all for baptism. I I have had only one baptism in all my years of pastoring where we didn't have classes beforehand. So I'm all for discipleship classes that help us go into baptism. But you understand that strict catechism for new converts did not begin in the church until the third century. That's 300 or 200 years after the book of Acts was written. Now again, let me be clear. This does not mean that baptism is the means by which we're saved. But it does mean that these two things are, and they always have been, inextricably linked to what faith in Christ is about. And one of the reasons why is because, listen, baptism graphically depicts for us what happens when we die to our sin and when we are united to Christ. So before Christ, we were spiritually dead to God because of our sins, but because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and his example, when we put our faith in him, we are made alive to God. And just as if we were born again, just as if we had died and been raised again, baptism is a sign and a symbol of that. And if you think Paul misunderstood that, take a look at Romans chapter 6. He's extremely clear. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, exclamation point. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or, (laughs) don't you know that all of us who were baptized, hey, thank you, into Christ Jesus were into his death. We were therefore buried with him. That's an amazing statement. We were buried with Jesus through into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
through the glory of the Father that we too may live a new life. Would you notice two important things here? Did you notice, first of all, that Paul, he just presupposes that the entire Roman church has been baptized. That every person listening to this letter being read, every one of them had been baptized. Because he says, you don't go on sinning because what? When you were baptized, you were dead and buried with Christ. He assumes that if someone is a Christian, they have already been baptized. It is not an option for him. Second, even though baptism is not the moment of salvation for a person, Paul recognizes that there is something supernatural going on in baptism. That God is doing something in that moment that we cannot do for ourselves. Something happens in the water. That's, what it, that's why we say it is a means of grace. So that when we pass through the waters of baptism, it's not just a sign of having left the old life behind and beginning the new, but it is in that moment identifying with the death and the resurrection of Jesus himself. It is the putting off of our old self, and it's the putting on of Jesus. And that identification brings a new power, a new power into the life of a believer that is given in a moment of grace that helps break us free from sin's grip in our life. I'll never forget one baptism in my first church. We, we were baptizing folks who were just, it was San Francisco, and there were no people that were just faking church there. So when someone gave their heart to Christ, it was a transformation and a complete change of lifestyle, and baptisms were huge celebrations. I remember one, we baptized a young woman who'd been addicted to drugs and alcohol and, and she came up out of the water and there was something powerful going on in her life and, and after we baptized I think nine or ten people, the service was over. And I, I was walking back into, uh, back to change my clothes and I saw someone sitting in the dark in the corner and there, I turned on the light, and there she was sitting. She was still sitting in those wet baptism clothes in the corner. I asked her if she was okay, and, she, and she, she was so profoundly moved that she said, Pastor, I have never felt this clean. I've never felt this alive, and I'm afraid to take these clothes off. She was, she was trying to talk about the fact, I just put on some new clothes. Something happened to me in that moment. I am dying to my old self. And I'm rising anew to Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean there's never going to be another temptation. Doesn't mean there'll never be another struggle. But it does mean that the bondage and power of the old life is broken and defeated by the power of God. And he writes, expresses this so well. He, I, I wish I could say it like N.T. Wright says it. But I want you to see what he says. Baptism is not magic. It's not a conjuring trick with water. But neither is it simply a visual aid. It is one of the points established by Jesus himself where heaven and earth interlock. 
where new creation, where resurrection life appears within the midst of the old, it should be the foundational event for all serious Christian living and all dying to sin and all coming alive with Christ. Let me summarize what he just said. Something happens in the water. And I don't fully understand it. It is a mystery, but it's a mystery established by Jesus himself, where heaven and earth interlock, where new creation, where resurrection life appears in the midst of the old. And I am convinced that there are so many Christians today, and I'm talking now to my beloved church, there are many good Nazarenes who have never experienced a deep spiritual vitality in their lives because they have never entered into baptism with a heart of obedience and surrender so that the newness of life promised by Jesus gets soaked down into their roots. I can testify to that. Some of you know my baptism story. I was in my fourth year of pastoring Bethany First Church. I was 44 years old. I had baptized hundreds of people. But I was living with the fact, being raised in that church, you know, where we never talked about it, I didn't know if I had been baptized. I was pastoring a church. I didn't have any memory of it. And, and for most of my adult life, I would go to my mom and I'd try to kind of assuage my guilt and say, Mom, I was baptized, right? And she'd say, oh yeah, you were baptized. And, but as I got older and as I became kind of more under conviction with this, I, I started to push her a little bit on that. Hey, Mom, when was I baptized again? Oh, you were just a little, little boy. I know that, but who did it? Oh, one of our pastors did it. When did it happen? Oh, you know, I just don't... I said, Mother, you have my baby teeth in a baggie. You have clips of my, haircut, my first haircut somewhere in, in a scrapbook. I can't believe that something like baptism would be something that you can't put your finger on. And I kept pushing her and pushing her. And finally I said to her, Mom, this is really important to me. I need to know, do you know for sure that I was baptized? And she said, I'm not sure. And I said, then I'm going to be sure. So the next Monday morning, we had our staff meeting. And we were all gathered around the table getting ready for the following Sunday. And I said, we're going to call a timeout today. Next Sunday, we're going to have a baptism. And I could see all of the detailed persons looking around like, did we have a baptism class? I mean, have we, haven't, have we, have we given the announcement for this? I said, I know we haven't done that, but we're going to let people do it spontaneously on the spot. And they said, what does spontaneous mean? You've never been spontaneous before. <laughs> I said, it means I'm going to give an invitation and invite whoever wants to be baptized to come forward. And they said, We're going to, we are going to do that. Yes, we are. 
It, but they're not going to come prepared. No, they're not. And I'm going to be the first one baptized. And that really started a conversation. But I, they said, what do you want us to do? I said, here's what we should do. We're going to go to Walmart, and we're going to buy every piece of undergarment that they have. Buy all sizes. We can take it back. Uh, executive pastor can take it back. Um, <laughs> and they said, how many should we plan for? I said, let's plan for 25. Buy, buy women's clothing, buy men's clothing, buy, you know, buy everything you can because people aren't going to come ready. Buy towels, buy hair dryers. I mean, we just, we did the whole thing. We went out and got it all. And the next Sunday morning, we had a big, we had everything prepared. We had people ready to go. We had the baptistry full. And uh, I preached a sermon. And when the sermon was over, I told my story. And I said, I'm going to be baptized first. And if there's anybody here who wants to come right now, you can be baptized with me. I had no idea what to expect, but, and I knew pe what people were thinking. In fact, I used the line, if you have a change of heart, we have a change of clothes. <laughs> I said, you know what? I've loved God with all my heart for most of my life. I've been com as committed as I know to be, but there's an area that I'm not sure that I fully surrender to, and I'm going to humble myself today, and I'm going to do this. And I'm not doing this as an example to you. I'm doing this strictly out of obedience to Jesus, and I'm going to be sure. And when I opened the opportunity for people to come and stand and give their baptismal vows, I was not prepared for what I saw. I saw board members putting their purses down. I saw board members taking off their jackets. I saw elderly people in wheelchairs coming down. I saw children, and I told the I said, parents, you're going to have to talk to your kids. I want, you I want this to be good with you as a parent. I saw entire families come down. There were so many people at the front that I actually had a fear for a moment. I thought, how many of these people are coming to be rebaptized just because they were moved? And the Lord immediately checked me on that. He said, stop being so uh, rational. Let the Spirit move. How many people there were rebaptized? They have no idea. But I can tell you this, there were a lot more that had never been baptized. And these were good people. These were saved people. These were sanctified people. But they, they had come to a point in their life where they just had never... It, it had gotten away from them. And many of them told me later, I have lived with so much guilt over my life because I love the Lord, but I can't do this when I'm 50 years old. That morning, holy chaos ensued. I'd never seen anything like it. Something happened in the spirit of that sanctuary. There were there was shouting, there was weeping, there was repentance, there were people falling at the altars, there, there were people who were saved, there were people who were reconciling with folks that they had needed forgiveness from. All, all of this was happening in the middle of the baptism. One, there was one woman who came right at, at the end of the first service, and, and she had not been in a church before, and she stood at the front of the altar, and, and she, stood, she just stood there. She didn't know what to do, but she was so moved by what was happening. One of our pastors came and said, can I help you? She said, I have no idea what's happening here today, but she said, I know I need this. We pray, she prayed to receive Christ, and the next service, she gets baptized. 
That morning in two services, we baptized 193 people. You ever baptized 193 people with a full baptistry? You know what happens when you're done with 193 people? The water is about this much, and there's so much hair gel, and the, but that's, enough, that's another thing. People were calling each other between services saying, you've got to get here for second service. There were people saying, son, get down here. You've never been baptized. This is your moment. And they came, 193 people. So many people missed it. And there were so many people who said, Pastor, I wasn't obedient today. That two Sundays later, we baptized another, I've got this written down, another 93 people. We baptized 300 people in three Sundays. Something happened in the water. It changed the fabric of that church. It changed the trajectory of that church. Something happened that day. And it happened to the glory of God. I want to show you as we close just a brief video clip of some highlights from that day. And just enjoy uh, the celebration that's going on. The 14-year-old uh, that I hugged at the end was my daughter, who I didn't know. She was one of the 193 that morning, and she was baptized. And I, I will never, as long as I live, for, forget the scene of carrying senior adults into the baptistry in wheelchairs who couldn't get there. And they said, well, I... We had a place for people to, to be poured, but they wanted to get in the water. In fact, uh, the following, the two Sundays after, I had a special opportunity in that second baptism for this to happen. I baptized my mother because she didn't remember when she was baptized either. That picture is in my office at the BGS office in Kansas City. My brother and sister, I'm just trying to say this. Something happens in the water. And it's where heaven and earth interlock. Resurrection life appears in the midst of the old in that moment. I hope we can encourage our pastors toward obeying Jesus. Um, let's call our pastors to this. This isn't, this isn't just memorialistic. This isn't just giving witness. Let's bring divine life through Jesus' commandment to our church. As we close tonight, this is something that we did spontaneously. We wondered, is there anybody here who is like me? That you've been a Nazarene all your life and you have not had the opportunity to be baptized. This uh, came up last summer when I was preaching at the Arizona camp meeting 
and someone asked me a question about baptism in one of our services. Doug always has a great kind of Q&A, and they asked me a question, and they said, tell us how you were baptized. So I told a brief story like that, and then I just felt prompted. I said, I'll bet there's people here who've never been baptized. And Doug had said, Let's, we've got a brand new swimming pool down here. Let's just take everybody outside and have a spontaneous baptism. And we baptized uh, four people after that service, as I remember. And the fourth one to come into the pool was Becky Pierce. And we were all surprised, as Doug was, that here came the district superintendent's wife. And in that moment, Doug got to baptize Becky, and I think Becky gave a fist pump when she was done. It took a lot of humility, but it was an act of obedience on Becky's part, and she told me I could share that. So I'm going to ask you if I'm just going to give you the opportunity. There may be no one, but if there is someone here, we, we will baptize you with people who love you. And we're not going to make a a big altar call to do it. This is the best of the best. But if there's anybody here who just feels like, I didn't think I was going to get another opportunity, we're providing one. So if you want to be baptized right now in this place, I'm going to ask you to come and just stand.